Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly this is such an important passage uh, that really deserves our full attention. We pray that you will give me the Holy Spirit to preach faithfully and that uh, truly your Holy Spirit may be at work as well among those who are listening, that it may strike our hearts to the core uh, of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I want to ask you a question. What is the worst thing that you have ever seen in your life? What is the worst thing you've ever seen in your life? Now, I've seen a lot of bad things. Uh, in fact, if you go to YouTube now, you can just type something down you can see it. You can see people get killed in a tsunami. You can see people get shot. You can see people get run down by cars. You can see people die in earthquakes. That's true, isn't it? I'm sure you've probably seen worse things than I have seen. Now, the problem for us is as we have seen all these things on television, on YouTube, or whatever else that you watch things on, we may come to Mark chapter 15 in the same way as disinterested observers. You know, uh, something where we are just remote spectators. And we look at this event and we think it's just some random event somewhere in the world, some accident or some tragedy which has nothing at all to do with me. That somehow it's got no cause, no reason, no rationale and we just go on and do our own things. Because that's what happens, is that you watch TV, you turn on the news, you see people get killed, and what do you do? You turn to the sports channel and watch soccer. Or maybe you go on eating your dinner. Or maybe you just turn it off and you go to sleep. But the problem is when we come to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15 is preceded by Mark chapter 1 to 14, isn't it? And that's what we do at church. Isn't it? We read the Bible in this context and we know that the death of Jesus is not some random event. It is not some accident, it is not some tragedy with no rhyme or reason. That Jesus has been preparing his life for this time in Mark chapter 15. See, as we've been reading through, let me take you through uh, the reminders. Right, in Mark chapter 2, right at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was with his disciples, and the Pharisees had come to Jesus and said, Why are your disciples not fasting? And what did Jesus say? How can the guests of the, bar- uh, the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom, which is him, will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Now, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is identified for the very first time by Peter as the Christ. And what does Jesus do? He tells the disciples, in verse 31, He began to warn them, Sorry, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And from chapter 8, he goes on to Mark chapter 9. And remember, Mark chapter 9, Jesus was transfigured on the mountain where he was taken up to heaven and we could see him with Moses and Elijah. And again, what did Jesus say? You know, in case they had their minds in the clouds thinking this is going to be a great time, right? Heaven's going to come, he's going to be enthroned as king today. Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Again, they are on their way to Jerusalem. So we have Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, now Mark chapter 10. We are going up to Jerusalem, he says in verse 33. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the disciples, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Now for us, we're not very familiar with the, the geography of the Middle East. Uh, obviously, we're not as familiar with the Middle East as we are Singapore, right? But for the reader of the book of Mark, it would be very clear that as Jesus moved closer and closer to Jerusalem, he kept telling his disciples, 
I am going there to to die, isn't it? To die. So you look up here, right? So in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus is recognized by Peter, he says, I'm going to die. Then when he goes down to Capernaum, I'm going to die. When he goes down towards Jericho, I'm going to die. Finally in Jerusalem, he goes to finally die. Okay? Now, as we look at this, this means that we cannot come to Mark chapter 15 in a way that we look at the news on television. Because Jesus dies for you and for me. Okay, for those of you at the church camp, the speaker was very good at calling out people, right? Right? Jesus comes to die for Ray. Right? Jesus comes to die for Ben. Jesus comes to die for each and every person who is willing to accept his death on their behalf. Remember, what is the key verse of the book of Mark? The key verse of the book of Mark is on the title page of this commentary that I have. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. What does 10 and 45 say? If you can have this as your memory verse, you know what Mark is saying, right? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. If you close your eyes and imagine that BTPC is an old stained glass church, right? then this is what will appear in one of the stained glasses. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And that is why Jesus, in Mark chapter 15, is doing all these things. And that's why when we come to verse 1 to 5, if you look here carefully, I'm going to speed it up a bit, right? Okay? That's why if you look at Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 5, and for those of you who have your Bibles, you need to look at it. Pilate says in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But still Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Pilate was amazed. Now why was Pilate amazed? Why was Pilate amazed? Why was Pilate amazed? Well, Pilate was amazed because here was an innocent man, right? An innocent man who does not defend himself. That is the natural thing to do, isn't it? Imagine you get uh, called up by the police and they charge you with murder. The murder of someone that you did not murder. What are the two logical things that you do? First thing is you, you say, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Maybe the second thing is you say, okay, I'm guilty, but I want to plead down to manslaughter so that I do not get death. Isn't that what you normally do? But here, if you look at this passage, Jesus doesn't say anything. In fact, it says that, yes, it is as you say, right? Literally, Jesus says, are you the king of the Jews? So you say. That's what it literally says. That's what the words are. So you say, or you say so. But what the charge, king of the Jews, was really all about was, Pilate was accusing Jesus of being like Osama bin Laden. Now, what do I mean? You see, Osama bin Laden is a terrorist. He wants to bring down America, right? And that's what the charge is. The charge is, Jesus is trying to bring down the Roman Empire. He's trying to get freedom for the Jews. Trying to get liberation for, the, to, for, for Israel. That is what it means to be the king of the Jews. To stand up against Rome. But Jesus is not standing for those things. 
the logical thing for Jesus would be to say, look, you know, I'm the king of the Jews, but not in the same way that you understand it, not in the way that your charge is placed against me. I'm not here to overthrow the Roman Empire. I'm here to bring forgiveness to people. I'm here to bring God's kingdom to the whole world, not just the Roman Empire. And he probably would have been free. But he chose not to do that. Why? Because of Mark 10.45, isn't it? Because he needed to go to the cross as a ransom for your soul. He needed to go to the cross for my soul. And that's why this uh, pastor, Dudley Ford, that I heard, he used this uh, good illustration. He said that he knew of a pastor who did a survey of his church members. He asked 100 of his church members, what difference does the death of Jesus make in your daily life? So what difference does the death of Jesus make in your daily life? Well, in this church, out of 100 members, 45 members said it made no difference. 25 said it made some difference. 10 people said they didn't understand what the cross was all about. They didn't understand the question. right? And only 20 people said the cross made a difference in the way that they lived. Now, it shows then that people don't see that Mark chapter 15, that the cross of Jesus was for us, isn't it? Jesus chooses not to answer these charges and it amazes Pilate because he's doing it for you and for me. It must make a difference, Mark chapter 15, in our lives. Now, as we look at this passage, one player is Pilate. And actually, if you look at this passage closely enough, I don't have time to go through it all. Pilate is really not interested in crucifying Jesus. Do you, do you notice that? He actually wants to set Jesus free. In the end, he only crucifies Jesus because he's afraid of the crowd. If you look in history, Pilate didn't have any great love for the religious leaders, the Jews. In fact, he was always at loggerheads with the Jews. He would be very happy to set Jesus free. It was because of the crowd and the religious leaders that Pilate crucified Jesus. Now why? Why did the crowd want Jesus to be crucified? Now if you look at this passage, it says there in verse 6, now this is where you need to keep taking your Bible, so I look at the Bible, verse 6. Now, it was the custom of the, at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Right? Now, what used to happen was, at every Passover, I guess the Roman governor, as a way of, uh, as a political move, would release a prisoner to the people. You know, just to show that I'm a nice guy, I'll release one, one person. And there was a great crowd there, right? They weren't gathering there at 6 o'clock in the morning. Apparently, this happened about 6 o'clock in the morning where this great crowd was there. They weren't there for the stand chart marathon. Okay? They were there because they wanted to, to petition uh, Pilate to release a political prisoner. Who was that? This guy called Barabbas. Barabbas was, it says there in verse 7, an insurrectionist who committed murder in an uprising. Here was a person who would be happy to be called the king of the Jews because he wanted liberation he wanted to free his people and he murdered people to free the Jews and the name Barabbas you know what Barabbas means? what does Barabbas mean? Barabbas means son of the father son of the father so on one hand you have Barabbas the son of the father and on the other hand you have Jesus the true son of the father and which did the crowd come to see set free? It was Barabbas, isn't it? Not the true Son of God, the Father. 
Because they weren't interested in what Jesus had to offer. They weren't interested in salvation. They weren't interested in uh, the release of judgment and hell. They were more interested in political freedom. And the religious leaders were more than happy to push the crowd in that direction. And that's why it says there in verse 9 and 10, look at the Bible, it says there in verse 9 and 10, look at what it says there. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Now, if you were just to come to Mark 15, if you've been missing the whole of Mark chapter 1 to 14, this will come as a surprise. Because you would think that the religious leaders of all the people would be the first to welcome Jesus. Don't you think? It's like having uh, the pastor, the church, the minister, the archbishop. These would theoretically be, the, or even the Pope, these would be the people who would welcome Jesus with open arms. But here, it says that they wanted Jesus killed out of envy. Out of envy. They were jealous of Jesus. And I think this is a very important lesson for us because a religious person does not necessarily love God. You can use religion to push God away. You can use religion to push God away. And I was reading this book recently which I will recommend to you, The Prodigal God. And uh, he talks here about the parable of the prodigal son and talks about the older brother. And I like this definition of sin that he makes. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate, profligate immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules, it is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord and Judge. It is seeking to displace the authority of the Father in your own life. See, here were the religious leaders and they scrupulously kept the law, but they were never really interested in listening to God, having the authority of God in their lives. They wanted to challenge God. They wanted to challenge God's Son. And what a difference it makes because when we compare the religious leaders to John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist? We learned of him in Mark chapter 1. Here was the last great prophet of Israel. And yet, this is what he said about Jesus, right? In verse 7. Verse 7. Right? This is what he said. He said, This is his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So the last great prophet of Israel doesn't even see himself worthy to stoop down and untie the shoelaces of Jesus. But yet, the religious leaders wanted to challenge the Son of God. They were envious of the Son of God. Now, as you look at this passage, I think in some way we have to ask ourselves, would we be like the people in the crowd? Would we shout and say, crucify Him, crucify Him? Would we be like the religious leaders and think that we come to church every week, we read the Bible, we pray, we go to Bible study, actually, I'm good enough, I don't need Jesus anymore. There's a great temptation that we'd be like that, isn't it? I like this illustration by Dudley Ford. He says that, you know, in the Tate Gallery, apparently this is very famous gallery, art gallery in England called the Tate Gallery. There is this painting by this famous painter whom I've never heard of called Stanley Spencer. Okay? And he's painted this picture called Christ carrying his cross. 
I think you can't see the details very closely, but uh, there's Christ there, and he's carrying his cross. But then, it is set in modern day England. Well, actually, to be more precise, it is set in the place where the painter Stanley Spencer grew up. He grew up in this place called Cookham. And here, Christ is carrying his cross, not through the streets of Jerusalem. He's carrying it through the housing estate in Cookham. And, and, and what happened was, when the people from Cookham came to see this picture that Stanley had painted, they recognized their, their faces in the windows and in the apartments. Because we can be like that, isn't it? Imagine Jesus comes to Haogang in the HDB estate. Will we be those people leaning out of our HDB flat and shouting, crucify him, crucify him? Because I think if you look at this passage, if we see Jesus and we say, we don't need a king, a saviour God king to die for my sins, then we are as good as saying, crucify him, isn't it? If we need Jesus to free us from our financial problems, but not from our sins, then we are the same people who mock Jesus. If we are the sort of people who only need Jesus because we need to fix uh, our, our relationships, uh, our finances, or our health, then we're saying we don't need that sort of king. Crucify him. Or maybe we feel that, you know, we are very self-righteous people. We, are, we, are, we keep the law. We are good people. Right? We don't need, we don't see ourselves as sinful people, helpless and pathetic sinners. Then we are the same people over there, like the religious leaders who say, I don't need God to tell me what I need in my life. I'm good enough. And that's what this book, The Prodigal God, is saying, that religious people can sometimes be as isolated from God as the worst sinner. Because the religious person thinks that they are good enough, that I'm good enough to get into heaven myself. I've done all these things. God, you owe it to me. Of all people, you owe it to me to do what I want to get me into heaven, to, to do this and this in my life. And there is, no, there is no humility to say, God, I am a sinner. I need Jesus. I need for you to tell me what to do, even if I don't like it. Now, as we look at this passage, again, it reminds us of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. So Mark chapter 34, uh, next slide. Again, Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. It doesn't say Jesus gives his life as a ransom for all. Who are the many? The, the many are those who need Jesus. Don't you remember when we, did, when we looked at Jesus and how he said, only if you receive the kingdom like a little child, helpless, dependent, needy, only those people will enter the kingdom of God. Well here, only those who come to Jesus and say, yes, we need your death on the cross, Jesus. Only those will be saved. Now as we come to verse 16 to 39, um, it talks about the flogging, the humiliation, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it's captured in great detail in this movie, right? Uh, the Passion of the Christ. Anybody seen it? Okay, now, you have to be over 18 to see it, okay? Because it's such a bloody movie. But I want you to notice one thing when you look at chapter 15. Actually, the details of the crucifixion of Jesus, almost every commentary will note that there's actually very little detail given about the crucifixion of Jesus. You look in uh, verse 24, there is actually only one line that says, and they crucified him. That's it. Now, it is not to say that Jesus didn't suffer physically, because he did. But if you think, a picture 
uh, what's the word again? A picture is worth a thousand words, right? Well, this movie then must be worth a couple of million, right? Because it focuses so much on the flogging of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And it is not to take away from the horror of what happened to Jesus. Okay? But I think that that is not where Jesus suffered the most. What Jesus suffered physically, if you go and watch The Passion of the Christ, was great. When you were flogged in the Roman times, it is much worse than uh, Michael Fay getting a cane in uh, Changi Prison. You know, Changi Prison, you just get hit by this heavy cane, right? And yes, it is very painful, and yes, it does leave bruises, and yes, your skin might break. But the Romans, they would whip you with this whip, and they would put sharp stones or sharp uh, bones on it, and when they whip you, it's recorded that your skin would tear and they would see the muscle underneath. And worse than that, you could actually see your internal organs. Right? And that's why, actually, when Pilate says, Behold the man, right? Behold the man. He's actually making fun because when, by the time he's, Jesus is flogged, he no longer looks like a man. Right? You, 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 your skin will be in tatters, you can see your muscles, everything. And then Jesus had this thorn pushed down on his head, that's bad enough. And then to be crucified was to be the worst form of death. Supposed to be the cruelest, grossest, most hideous manner of execution, the Roman scholar Cicero said. And uh, actually crucifixion is where the word, our English word excruciating comes from. And you know, have you heard the word excruciating? Excruciating pain? Right? It comes it means literally means out of the cross. That's how painful crucifixion is. But the thing is, if you look at this passage, Mark doesn't take great pains to describe the physical sufferings. Because the real pain comes from Jesus taking our sins. If we look at the death of Jesus on the cross in just physical terms, at like the passion of the Christ, we are missing the picture of Mark. We are missing the picture of what Jesus achieves on the cross. Now, I'm going to focus more on verse 33, right? So turn to me in your Bibles to verse 33. Okay? At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, why is that? Is, is Mark interested in, uh, in, in the weather? So it says that the weather report when Jesus died was cloud or dust storm or solar eclipse. Is he interested in that? No, he's not, right? He doesn't tell us why this happens. But darkness is a cosmic sign. It is a um, it is God's supernatural sign. Now, what, what is darkness a sign of? Uh, okay, imagine all the lights turn out here, right? And outside it's all black. What is it a sign of? What, what would you feel if all of a sudden now at uh, 12.45, the lights just went off inside here and outside? What would you feel? You feel great fear, right? Because it's a sign of God's judgment. God's judgment. In the plagues where God judged Pharaoh in Egypt, one of the plagues was deep darkness. Right? So Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. Again, in Amos chapter 8, uh, it speaks of a great day of judgment and this is what 
this judgment will be light. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. See, when Jesus hangs on the cross, there is darkness, not because it is bad weather, but it is a sign of God's judgment on Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Look at what it says there in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now why does he shout that out instead of saying, ah, I'm in suffering, or I'm in pain, or stop the pain? Why does he, why does he not say that? Why does he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God, at this point, is no longer with Jesus. Yes, Jesus is still part of the Trinity, but God has forsaken him. Because God hates sin. God's holy character cannot tolerate the sin that is now in Jesus Christ. You know, when God looks at Jesus at this point in time, what does he see? He sees the sins of a rapist. He sees the sins of a murderer. He sees the sins of a pedophile, the sins of a, of a, of a trafficker. Now imagine... Uh, someone comes to the door now, right? And one of you guys are the, the welcomer. And you go up and says, Oh, how are you? What's your name? And I goes, ah, I'm so and so. I've just been convicted of murder. Uh, I've just been convicted of rapist, of being a rapist, or a child molester, or a, a slave trafficker. How would you feel in terms of your relationship with this person? Would you want to invite this person over to your house for dinner tonight? Ask them to stay over for the night? No, you wouldn't, right? You would forsake that relationship because of that sin. Now imagine God seeing in Jesus the sins of the whole world, of all the rapists, all the murderers, and God forsakes His Son at this time. See, God is not like us. You know, for us, right, it's an interesting observation. I think it's a good one. We are attracted by sin. That's why when you watch television, you see stories, if there is no wickedness, no evil, no sin, it's not interesting. But God is revolted by sin. He cannot stand sin. In the Garden of Eden, when sin comes into the world, through Adam and Eve, He no longer walks among their midst. They are cast out of the Garden. God cannot stand sin. He forsakes His Son because of sin. Now, let's move on then. Verse 37, there's another detail. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed His last. He died. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now what curtain is he talking about? Your bedroom curtain. Right? Is he talking about that? No, right? The curtain uh, that uh, uh, is mentioned here is, is the temple curtain. There were two t- uh, curtains in the temple. The out, out, outer court, this really thick curtain, right? Not our thin curtains. It's like super thick, okay? It's heavy. Uh, then there's another curtain, the inner court, between God's presence and the Holy of Holies and the outer court. And again, that's very heavy. Now, people are not sure which curtain was torn, but I think that according to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which is up here, right, it is the inner curtain. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. You see, God had this place in the Holy of Holies. And there was a curtain there, but this curtain was only opened once a year by one person. Not every morning, right, open, every night you close, like you go to sleep. It just opened once a year by one person. And that was a high priest on the Day of Atonement. Because on that day, the priest was clean, clean of sin because of all the sacrifices of the bulls. 
But notice what happens when Jesus dies. The curtain is torn. Now, if I were to tear a curtain, what would I do? Imagine this is a curtain, right? This, this thing. How would I tear this curtain? I would tear the curtain from bottom to top, isn't it? Because I'm at the bottom, and I, if I was strong enough, right, I would tear it from bottom to top. But God tears the curtain from top to bottom at the death of Jesus. Because at the death of Jesus, there is no longer a barrier between you and me and God because Jesus has made us sinless. All the sins that you have committed, all the sins that you are committing, all the sins that you will commit are found in Jesus. And therefore we can now go in and have a relationship with Jesus. And lastly, at the death of Jesus, what happens? Verse 29. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now what did the centurion mean by that? Was he saying that Jesus was a holy man? That Jesus was a special man? That he was a godly man? No. You see, Mark again, when he began in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, how did he begin his gospel? Shall I ask someone? No, near. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here at Jesus' death, the centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. Something in his death, somehow the Holy Spirit was in this centurion. For all you know, this centurion was the same guy who was gambling for Jesus' clothes when Jesus was dying on the cross. But at the point of his death, this man recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. And all these signs point to what we already know in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. That Jesus died as a ransom for many. See, if you look at all the signs here, right? I'll put it up here. Yep. The Son of God is judged in that darkness because He has taken the sins of the world. He is forsaken by God because when God looks at Him, He doesn't see Him as His perfect Son, but with our sins. And therefore, at his death, we now have forgiveness. We now have free entry into a relationship with God. And therefore, Jesus' death has everything to do with you and me. Because it is not by accident that Jesus died. He didn't do it because he was an accidental victim of history. He did it for you, for me. He did it for Bernard. He did it for Joshua. He did it for, uh, you know... Everybody, he did for all of us. So therefore, it must make a difference, the cross and crucifixion of Jesus. And I think it makes a difference for us in two ways. And this is what the Bible says, right? Uh, it makes a difference because it shows us God's love. So this guy, John Woodhouse, who is the principal of my theological college in Australia, said, there is a difference between knowing and tasting the love of God. There is a difference between believing and experiencing the love of God. Right? It's, like, it's like the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and actually tasting honey, don't you think? So here, uh, someone left this box behind. It's, a, it's an ice cream box, but it doesn't have ice cream in it. Someone's children's toy in it or right, something. But imagine this is your favorite ice cream. I don't know what flavor you like, right? Dark chocolate. I don't know what, strawberry, blueberry, uh, vanilla, okay? Uh, Hagen-Dazs ice cream. 
great stuff. There's a difference between saying, I know that that's a good ice cream and tasting it, isn't it? And here, I think it's the same thing. We can stand, stand up here and say the Apostles' Creed. Remember we just said the Apostles' Creed? And what do we say? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. We might know that in our head. But what does it mean in our heart? Jesus did that for us. When we read Mark chapter 15, it shows us how much love God has for us. That He was willing to put His Son through that. It shows us how much Jesus loves us in suffering all that for us. That's the way the Bible looks at the cross. It is a picture of God's love. You know how much someone loves you? But how much they're willing to suffer for you. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? If someone's willing to really give all of themselves for you, it shows you how much they love you. So here in these passages, John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In Romans chapter 8, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for us. One day, one day, happens to all of us, we will question God's love. You fail your exam, you lose your job, you get sick, you get diagnosed with life-threatening disease, your pet dog dies, right? You question, why God? Why? Why don't you love me? But God loves you. You know how you know He loves you? Mark chapter 15. Jesus was spat upon. Why? Because He loves you. Jesus was struck on His head. Why? Because He loves you. Jesus was mocked. Why? Because He loves you. Jesus went to the cross and put His hands there where the nails would go through. Why? Because He loves you. So secondly, the first, so the first thing is it shows us God's love. The second thing is it shows us where our value comes from. I want to ask you a serious question. How important do you think you are? How important are you? And why do you think you're important? So think for yourself a second. How do you think of to see yourself? How important are you? Now, generally... Uh, we may think ourselves pretty important if we are successful. If you are successful in school, you think that you're pretty important. Or maybe you're successful in business or your career and you think you're important. Or maybe you have a lot of friends, so you perceive yourself as well. Or you're, you know, you've got a nice personality. Or maybe you're good looking, so you think yourself is important. But, the opposite is often true, isn't it? The opposite is true where if you, are, you don't have that many friends, or maybe you're not so successful in school, or you're not so successful at work, then maybe you don't see yourself as so important. When you actually think about it, in life, almost everything we do is to make ourselves feel important, and to be important, and to be seen as important by people around us, don't you think? But here, how do we know we are important? We are important because God was willing to give His Son to die for us. That is how we know we are important. I know this girl, I read about this girl in uh, this magazine, who has chronic fatigue syndrome. She was an attractive, intelligent, 
person. And when you have this thing called chronic fatigue syndrome, you basically lie in bed for like 20, 21 hours of the day because you're so tired. And she felt useless. She felt unloved. She felt useless in the world. She couldn't work. She couldn't study. She couldn't do all these things. But she still realized that she was important. Why? Because God was willing to give His Son for her. That's how we know we are important. You see, think about it this way. Ultimately, our importance is not what we do or who we are. It is what God esteems us to me. He esteems us so highly that He is willing to send His Son to die for us. So I just came back from holiday in Australia and I watched, when I was in Australia, I watched this movie that you can't watch in Singapore. Okay, not, not, it's not some X-rated movie or something. It's just that for some reason they don't show it in Singapore. It's called The Wrestler. And uh, it was nominated for an Academy Award a few years ago. And it shows up this guy who's a washed up wrestler. La. He used to be very famous, very good. But then now it shows him as he's older and he's washed up. He's bankrupt. He's got no money. He's got no place to live. He's a hopeless father. His children don't want to see him. His wife doesn't want to see him. He's useless la, in every way. In the world's eyes, he is nothing. Nothing. But the end of the movie, anyway, I can tell you the ending because you never watched it in Singapore, right? At the end of the movie, this girl says to him, says, you are important because I am here for you. I've come all this way to be with you. That, that is how you know you're important, because you're important to me. Well, isn't that the same for us? God sent His Son all the way from heaven down to earth to come to be flogged and humiliated and to die. How do we know we're important? Jesus came for us. That's how we know we're important. Jesus came all the way from heaven for us. For you, for me, to die on the cross. That's how we know we are important. So therefore, we cannot read Mark chapter 15 and say, well, it's just some interesting historical fact. It's some, something interesting like we watched in a movie. No, it's not. It has everything to, you, to do with you and with me. And it must mean that how we love, how we are loved by God, how we are valued by God must change. And how we relate to other people that every day the cross of Christ must mean something for us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we want to thank you for this gift which is so undeserved, that you sent your Son Jesus, who was God to become a man, to die and suffer under Pontius Pilate, to go to the cross, to die a humiliating death, an innocent man, but yet willingly obedient to you, to die for our sins. All the wrongs, all the evil and wicked that we have done was taken on that day by your Son Jesus. May it never be something which is far away from us. May it never be something which is remote from us. Something which has no emotional value to us. But may the cross always be something which is burned into our minds. Which strikes our hearts. That teaches us just how much you love us. And how valuable we are. And how it must change every facet of the way we live, we think and all our beliefs. We pray that indeed it will shape and change us 
in everything we do. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.